So, good evening and welcome to another Invisible Knowledge public event. My name is Viviana Kekia and I'm public engagement curator here at the CCA. Invisible Knowledge addresses knowledge production within Glasgow and is supported by Esme Ferben and research at Glasgow School of Art. PhDs in art practice are proliferating with little sign that the job market will catch up to an increase in doctoral graduates. What can researchers do in this context when they are working tangentially to or outside of an institution? What might a space for peer production related to the research into and alongside art look like? How can we create links between a widely dispersed group of researchers through the process of programming and discursive practice? Invisible Knowledge seeks to expand existing model models of research and programming partnership by connecting with the general public as an audience for research produced by and in collaboration with artist researchers. This allows for experimentation on behalf of researchers who have the opportunity to present their research to the public in a different format and for non-academic and non-specific arts audiences to engage with research in an institution such as the CCA. In this sense, Invisible Knowledge functions as a platform for proliferating and giving visibility to researchers and their attendant research, it's a lot of research in this switch, practices across the arts in Glasgow and Scotland on an individual and collective basis and to act as a bridging project between the work happening in GSA, CCA and other external art and non-art institutions. The program is managed by CCA with the research-led Invisible Knowledge Meeting Group, whose current 18 members are, and bear with me with the pronunciation of their names and surnames, Aydin Doran, Alberta Whittle, Caroline Gosden, Cecilia Stambon, Lindsay DeMann, Jake Watts, Tiffany Boyle, Kate Cohen, Richie Carey, Daisy Lafarge, Anastasia Filimonos, Fiona McClellan, Joanna Pease, Francis Davis, Ben Callahan, Catalina Barroso, Alex Rotney, and Phil Thomas. The Invisible Knowledge Group is an experiment in peer production methodology for artistic research coordinated by myself as CCA Public Engagement Curator and co-convened by Tiffany Boyle. The group's purpose is to use their research individually and collectively to inform a public program of events. So, for tonight, we have a special guest who has made research the central part of his practice. Paul O'Neill is an Irish curator, artist, writer, and educator. He is the artist director of Publix, a new art organization in Finland, formerly known as Checkpoint Helsinki, where he began last fall. He was until recently the director of the graduate program at the Center for Curatorial Studies, Bart College. Paul is widely regarded as one of the foremost research-oriented curators and leading scholar of curatorial practice, public art, and exhibition histories. Paul has held numerous curatorial and research positions over the last 20 years, and he has stood on many curatorial and visual arts programs in European and in Europe, European, in Europe and the UK. Paul is one of the most widely published authors in the field. He's editor of Curatorial Anthology, Curating Subjects, and co-editor of Curating and the Educational Turn, and Curating Research, both with Mick Wilson and co-published by the Apple and Open Editions. 
locating the producer, durational approach, approaches to public art co-edited with Claire Dirty and author of the critical acclaimed book, The Culture of Curating and the Curating of Cultures. He is visiting international tutor on the, the Apple Curatorial Program Amsterdam since 2005 and was international research fellow with the Graduate School of Creative Arts and Media Dublin between 2010 and 2013. From 2007 till 2010, he was responsible for, the leading, the, for leading the major international research program looking at durational approaches to public art, locating the producer and situations with the University of the West of England, Bristol, which take us to the topic of the night. In this talk, Paul O'Neill will attempt to bridge recent discussions around curatorship, public art, and urban practice by a reimagining of research methodologies through duration. He will do this by first exploring recent concepts of the curatorial and the ways in which they encompass certain ideas about durational specific research practice in conjunction with exhibition curating. Secondly, O'Neill will briefly draw up his research on durational public art in Europe and a couple of his curatorial projects to highlight the positive and negatives of long-term social and embedded approaches to public art which have emerged as responses to specific locations in a bid to engage multiple communities as a critique of the short-term peripatetic projects that have seen, have been, sorry, so prevalent over the past 20 years or so. Thirdly, it will consider the ways in which the idea of cohabitational time is a key attribute within these multifaceted projects as the means through which the curatorial and durational praxis can be brought closer together. And finally, O'Neill will draw upon the concept of attentiveness as a way of positing our current position as post-participatory. In this concept, the borders between the author producer and the participant receivers of public art are no longer so clearly attributed. Instead, the end work is produced by fields of interaction between multiple actors and agencies within durationally specific public art praxis. So, without further ado, please join me in welcoming Paul O'Neill. Thank you. And uh, <clears throat> thank you, Viviana, for the very kind introduction and also the very generous invitation. Uh, they really know how to work you in Glasgow, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I love work, so that's uh, both my... Uh, but my pleasure and my fault, I suppose. Um, but uh, what I'm going to do today, um, we've uh, probably gone for 38 minutes into your time. So it's going to be a little bit speedy because there's a lot of material to cover. But I really want to <clears throat> focus on mm, a couple of things. Um, in a way, this is a very different lecture to the lecture that I will give on Friday. Friday, if you all choose to come, it will be very entertaining. It will um, involve us escaping together, uh, but also being in the same place together whilst escaping. And uh, we will try to do that together through various kind of techniques about talking about the same thing over and over again. But today, <coughs> today's presentation is far more pedagogical than that. In fact, it's actually probably one of the most structured, one of the most structured papers that I've 
probably ever put together and I've put it together in a way so that it can actually be really worked with and it can really be something that becomes useful for um, people who are invested in duration but also um, committed to uh, durational research. And the key question that I'm going to respond to is what is the appropriate methodology uh, when thinking about durational practice? When things are so difficult to find, things are so difficult to articulate, things are so always in motion. And I like to also think of <clears throat> duration also maybe a little bit discursively. It's impossible to be discursive uh, whilst claiming to be discursive. That's the first lesson we learn about discursivity because discurs to be discursive is always somehow retrospective. It always is intentional, but it's only what we could only really reflect on being discursive after the, the after, after the cause and cause and effect. To be to claim to be discursive is actually very counter discursive. So this is also another thing I want, want that I learned from uh, from thinking about um, the relationship between research, the processual, the durational, and uh, practice. Some of the um, um, objects of study, subjects of study, moments of study that I'll present and I will present a lot of images. A lot of images that look very similar but a lot of images that look very similar because, <coughs> because many of these practices are very, very impossible and very, very difficult to kind of capture. And I mean projects which are durational in nature and elongated and evolve in time, over time, with many different uh, participants, protagonists involved in it. The, that particular research stemmed from the locating the producer duration approach to public art, stemmed from uh, a need, certainly within uh, the public art uh, discourse, within some public art discourse, but also within the field more generally, to really kind of tackle um, some of these practices that were maybe somewhat outside the mainstream or outside the common understanding of what constitutes public art. And the dominant form when embarking on that research many years ago, and it's an, it is ongoing research, um, and it's an ongoing investment that I have. Uh, you know, publics in Finland is maybe one current manifestation of how I hope that that will get played out in practice in collaboration with many other artists and non-artists. But plop sculpture was maybe the most dominant form of public art. That is when art just plops into the city or into an environment and it kind of makes certain claims for its own publicness. This is not public art. This is public art of a certain nature, but this is more like art that um, is cited in public space or semi-public space. You know, the great contradiction is that plop, the name plop sculpture, um, plop art, came from America. And of course, as we all know, there has never been, uh, certainly in the 20th and 21st century, any public space in uh, uh, the United States of America. I also wanted to <coughs> just uh, maybe show uh, some images of a project that was realized uh, in parallel to um, the research that I was doing, um, uh, which is called Our Day Will Come, which was a temporary free school that I set up in Tasmania, uh, inside the University of Tasmania, and I will talk about that a little bit. And then after going through these kind of this journey uh, together, we will end up with uh, a kind of 
using this painting to talk about attentiveness and the, its, uh, the need for attentiveness within um, contemporary curatorial practice more generally, but absolutely the need for attentiveness. It is, the, it is the one of the key attributes that one recognizes when studying many of these projects um, in terms of its elongation and its, um, its difficultness to, to, to grasp fully. It is important to be attentive. Um, I'm going to firstly draw upon, not on these texts, I, which I do very regularly, but on a different concept or two different concepts that I've Mm, that I'm kind of invested in trying, trying to find a way to uh, articulate the curatorial as a more like a malleable kind of practice. Curating is often associated with making exhibitions. Curating is always often associated with uh, organizing art externally, uh, meaning that arts organization somehow happens outside um, arts production. And therefore, the distribution of labor is very clearly defined, certainly within exhibition making within, a, within an institution, for example. Somehow those boundaries of, 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 uh, of who does what and how it's done can often be challenged by an institution and within an institution, but rarely is, is it like, does Francis McKee become like the artist or does uh, Viviana become the artist in her, in, in her curatorial projects? But there is often somehow a, dis a redistribution of labor at different points within, within any curatorial project. But I wanna make the point for curating or the curatorial as, as a space um, that uh, is, is malleable, flexible, and always um, somehow uh, emergent in terms of its in terms of its, uh, its structures and its falsity. Secondly, I'd like to think of curation as duration, and duration as curation. Somehow, somewhere along the lines of um, how Henri Bergson, who was the uh, great durationalist, if you like, um, claimed that um, duration was not only a psychological experience or a transitory state of becoming, it also was a concrete evolution of creativity and a state of being within time that secedes itself in, in, and always in kind of perpetual motion. You can read that if you wish to read that. But there are lots of different terms. I'm not, what I'm talking, what I'm, what I'm, what I have been looking at over the last, uh, say, 10 years in terms of durational approaches to public art um, is not, it's not new. It's, it's worth noting that you know, given, given, it's, um, given that durational public art is not the main way in which public art gets realized in whatever context it gets realized, it's important to note that it's been around for a very long time. And it's been around for a very long time and many theorists uh, have tried to find terms or expressions to define it or confine it or represent it or at least to, to separate it away from this kind of plop sculpture or permanent public sculpture, which is what I, what public sculpture is different to public art. Art, in order to be public, also requires some sort of like transformation within, within, the, within the public itself. And when I say the public itself, I mean the public as a concept, as a pluralist concept, but also as, as, as a space, as groupings of people, as many different, uh, discourses in, in and around what constitutes uh, public life. But these are some of the expressions that are, 
that have come up about homie baba conversational art dialogical public art tom finkelberg dialogical aesthetics ron kester new genre public art san lacy so on and so forth but i think what's made very different about the projects that have emerged certainly within the last 10 years maybe even 15 years is uh, is their um their kind of duration specific approach meaning that uh, they take rather a lot, lot, lot longer in terms of the, the time that the artist or curator commits to, 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 the, to the project. But already, <coughs> even when talking about this kind of like emergence practice and also how it's perhaps um, both emergent and maybe also somewhat of, has, has, has had a period of evolution within, within political art theories and within, within public art theory and within political theory, it's already been somehow historicized um, within the context of museums. And this was a very interesting attempt that some of you may be familiar with. Um, that's um, Tanya Bergera in collaboration with uh, Annie Fletcher, Charles Escher, and uh, a number of other people at the uh, Van Abbe Museum in Eindhoven initiated, actually also Grisdale Arts were involved, initiated um, uh, or co-initiator projects called the Museum of Art Util, Art Util very loosely translated as useful art, although there's not actually a direct translation um, into, in, into English, it means something slightly different. But the idea that art, that there is a certain kind of practice uh, that could be called Art Util, and what they did at the Van Abbey is they tried to come up with two versions of the museum, one which is the museum, modern museum, modernist museum, based on its uh, incredible collection of uh, primarily uh, Russian avant-garde in the beginning and, and then late, later on the kind of emergence of modern and contemporary art after that moment. So they exhibited and produced an exhibition um, of that version of their museum and then also this version of the museum, which was, was loosely divided into conversation and uh, consensus. So two different versions of uh, two different versions of art util, art art util that art or useful art that is somehow conversational and other forms of uh, art util that might be kind of consensual or seemingly dem democratic in its process. But it looked very like this. Can you just read that? No. I can't, I can't read my screen either. Uh, but it looks like this. But some of the projects I, some of the projects that I invested, maybe four years uh, embedding myself in a durational research process were a project called Creative Egremont, which was ongoing since 2005, which was um, co-curated by Grisdale Art, Adam Sutherland and Al Alistair Hudson. Uh, looks a little bit like this when you go visit it. Um, but Egremont is a very socially deprived part of um, Cumbria. You know, when you consider how <coughs> uh, the tourist industry has had such a, um, an economic boom for the area, but it hasn't filtered down to many of the kind of post-industrial or post-mining communities, such as Egremont, which was a, a, a primarily a town orientated around mining, which was closed, obviously, in the 80s. Thatcher and so forth. Uh, other projects that I've looked at are uh, Blue House in Eiberg, which was a project initiated by Jeanne van Heeswijk, Dennis Kasporian, Hervé Parpanaris. Um, he's a, a 
very interesting Greek architect. And like all, like many things in uh, the Netherlands, uh, it's very uh, Eiberg was incredibly um, was a social engineering project primarily where the city of Amsterdam decided to um, to basically reclaim land or build on top of the sea um, and extend the city of Amsterdam out to a neighborhood which would be called Eiberg, but it would take 20 years to uh, be developed residentially and also uh, infrastructurally. And Jana was offered the project, a, a, a project proposal to um, do something in one of the first units which were developed um, by the city. And these were often uh, environments where, or housing estates where um, both private and housing, private and social housing would coexist, something like this. Uh, the ones which are private have gardens, the ones which are social. Uh, it's funny that they should be called social housing. I always I just can never get my head around that. Uh, but they don't have gardens. Um, and she recognized when uh, looking at the plans for the area, there was this blue villa. And this blue villa was the most uh, expensive uh, building in the neighborhood, in the new neighborhood. She arranged with the uh, owner to, of that building to take it off the market and to turn it into what they called um, the Housing Association of the Mind. And the Housing Association of the Mind would be a four-year project uh, based around these particular strands, accelerated histories, instant urbanism, and hospitality. This is a, an instant urbanism project by the um, landscape gardener uh, uh, Rudy Leutman. Uh, Rudy Leuter, sorry, excuse me, and it's a it's an edible garden um, set up by residents in that block that you've seen picture of, um, and um, but uh, designed and also uh, facilitated by Rudy um, as his contribution to the Blue House. There was also lots of other instant urbanist projects uh, at a time when. There was very little urbanism in Eiberg. Uh, I think the first restaurant in Eiberg took four years to open already. Most people had already moved in. Uh, the, there is still yet to be a library. Um, a lot of young families were brought in from failed suburban projects from the 50s and, and also the 70s. This is one quite nice project, very simple, but I think very effective where uh, they invited a local florist who had moved out of her home but also out of her, her workplace and they invited her to set up a stall in Eiberg and of course there was no regulations for uh, yet in place for selling things on the street uh, because Eiberg would be a different district to Amsterdam, it would have its own governing uh, municipality and in, in doing so or in arranging to do so they, they were, they were um, able to do lots of things, which are probably less easy to do now, actually, now that the, the municipality have made certain kind of legislative moves towards what constitutes public and what constitutes private or commercial space. Uh, they also had a children's library, which was a share-based library at the beginning, and they had a pop-up restaurant or a series of pop-up restaurants. Uh, the building became maybe a little bit too, um, too small for the, for the capacity of many of the projects. 
So they invited Hervé uh, Perpinaris to extend or to double the circumference of the building, within which there was um, a number of like um, youth uh, projects, uh, working with um, local youths who had moved into the area and uh, training them to be sound engineers. This was a this was an illegal immigrant radio migrant radio station set up by migrants for migrants. Um, this was a pop-up cinema, uh, of which there were many, many films screened that had a kind of contextual relationship with the environment. And after four years, they decided to close with an amazing conference called Out of the Blue, where they took over, uh, they took over um, what was to become, so this building here was to become the future kind of cultural center for Iberg. And uh, the Blue House moved into this environment and built these temporary bedrooms for people to stay, and then a kitchen for people to eat. And uh, after the conference, the um, building was put back on the market. It was on the market originally for 4.5, and uh, after four years, it was on the market for 1.75. Uh, but I think also Janet, uh, I mean, some, an artist whose work I followed fairly closely over the years, but I think this project that she's been doing in Liverpool at Anfield called Two Up, Two Down, or Home Baked, there's two projects wrapped into one, is, is a very interesting extension of what uh, the Blue House was doing in Iberg. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with soccer, football, and Liverpool Football Club, this is Anfield Stadium, uh, this is Anfield's, this is a project that the Tories uh, decided to come up with and move all of the residents who'd been there for uh, since, the, um, since the beginning of Anfield, uh, move them out of uh, Anfield and rehouse them um, in these uh, uh, new uh, houses, but they're therefore emptying out Anfield of much of its communities, which is actually starting to change now considerably, but definitely um, with the support of this particular project. And Two Up, Two Down is a big scale project. It's a long-term long project. Um, it's durational. It, involved, it involves training uh, young people to build. It involves training young people to um, uh, bake, to cook, and so forth. And actually, a lot of uh, young women, which I think is also really interesting. Um, to um, occupy um, this area of, of Anfields in this bakery. So this is the bakery which was there many years ago when Anfield was a fully populated community or communities. And they <coughs> took over this building and then they brought, a, brought the bakery back to life somehow. And through the bringing the bakery back to life, they then um, they, uh, trained people to how to bake, how to cook, how to sell goods, um, but through all of the profits, all of the profits that are accrued through this process, um, and for any of you who have been to Anfields on a football day, of which I have been a few times, um, uh, you will notice that uh, there is uh, there are a lot of people there, and there are a lot of baked goods being consumed, so it's actually been a very profitable um, project, and out of the profits from that, pro thank you, Liliana. Uh, out of the profits from that project, they um, they um, they buy uh, the the house next door, and then they buy the house next door to that, and then they buy the house next door to that, and then convert it into this kind of social housing project uh, for the, for the area. 
and that's the it's now actually becoming a community development agency which is which is evolved out of the project but no longer uh, directed or run by Jana or um, Liverpool Biennial, who were actually one of the first commissioners of this specific project. Other projects I was looking at was a project in Lights Rhine, again in the Netherlands. Netherlands, uh, up until certainly recently, maybe four years ago, some of the more innovative public art projects which were being realized in Northern Europe uh, were being realized in the Netherlands, I would say. Um, this is a project called Beyond, which is in Light Rhine again, a city extension, but this time of Utrecht. And it was based on these six strands, looping parasites, artist houses, white spots, action research directing that there. Uh, this is Parasite Paradise. This is a project by N55, which involved the purchasing of a piece of land and ensuring that it's uh, never sold. And, and it's always um, uh, a piece of land that will have common use or common public use. This is a project by Big Van der Paul, which was an artist research center where many artists, including Marilyn Dijkman, who's sitting there, were invited in to um, spend some time in Light Rhine during its moment of being developed. Again, it was a city extension, but also it began, um, it began slowly to evolve as a series of communities who were brought in from other parts of the Netherlands. Again, failed suburban projects. This is quite a nice project by the artist Dominic Gonzalez Forster. And Dominique um, produced these two architectural spaces, which were uh, one which was the, the container and then the other which was a farming silo and put the two, two kind of like architectural structures together to produce these two, two environments, one uh, both similarly um, looking very similar in Light Rhine, but they became um, centers for archaeological research. Uh, Light Rhine is historically a Roman site, so it's uh, full of lots of interesting things under the ground, and it's become this kind of architectural research center, uh, as well as a kind of a pop-up school for, for teenagers. This is a very quite nice project by Manfred Pernice, um, which was um, um, what Manfred organized was the removal, the removal of groupings of public art from the city of Utrecht and then placed on a roundabout at the entrance of the new extension of, of Utrecht and it would change uh, on a regular basis and after a period of like I think a month, each, each show lasted a month and uh, they were returned to their original place, but I think also testing and questioning uh, the ideas of permanent public sculpture. Uh, they also produced an archive. This was a project uh, established by Kirsten Bergendahl uh, called the Trichroner Art Plan in Roskilde in Denmark, uh, which was based on these three parallel tracks of Trichroner to give form to a place, to activate a place, to write a story of a place, included many different projects. This is one of the more successful ones. This is Niels Norman's footbridge, which connects Roskilde or Trikroner with Roskilde. Roskilde is uh, perhaps most well-known for its university. There's a very good university there. And uh, what Niels did was to build this footbridge in collaboration with Kirsten, but that the footbridge would also be a site for um, kind of like um, uh, horticultural, horticultural research that would then feed into the, some of the research projects in the university. This was a project 
by Jakob Jakobsen, where he redesigned the car park spaces between social and private housing, where there was some kind of social space or public space where tenants who were, and residents who were living in one side of the city or the other could meet. And they also doubled up as market spaces at the weekends, as well as like um, ice rinks or ice, temporary ice rinks during the winter uh, when it snowed. But the main uh, focus of Kirsten's project was to really embed it within the master planning processes of the city. So this is an incredible workshop that she did, that I attended. I didn't understand any of it. Uh, but it, the, certainly the dynamics was very interesting, where residents were invited to make proposals to the master planners of the city, and that the, the, that the, um, some of which were, were, were subsequently realized. And Kirsten went on to do another interesting project, which I recommend any of you looking at, which is called Park Lek, which is in Stockholm in Sweden where the process of engaging with local residents in the master planning processes has happened at a much earlier stage. And this is a project uh, called Edgware Road, uh, which was set up by these people, Sally Talent, Janet Graham, Ashka Lalwan, and Townhouse Cairo, where they um, invited a number of artists into the Edgware Road area in London to engage with many of its multiple migrant histories and to and it was structured around these three particular terms. The research phase, which was building an archive around Edgware Road. There was a free cinema school, uh, which tapped into the history of free cinemas, uh, free, the free cinema movement, uh, which uh, has a quite a coherent and long-term history with the Edgware Road area in London, and then mobilizing the archive alongside uh, 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 temporary events. They, they established what was called a Centre for po Possible Studies, uh, where various artists were invited in to engage with questioning what constitutes a study, what is it to study, and so forth. So that's, they are some of the projects that I've been looking at. And as you can see from so many of those projects, um, it's, uh, quite, uh, they're quite dense and difficult to, to really um, fully grasp all those photographs are photographs that I took. They're all photographs that were taken at moments, perhaps, which were semi-public, in a sense that they, they, they weren't yet um, moments where the projects were announcing themselves as, as pub public art. And I think it, the, what I recognized after about a year of looking at these projects is that it was increasingly difficult to to represent them and increasingly difficult to actually find them. Um, like who was doing what, what was doing what, uh, what was the outcomes, what was the intention, who was involved, who was not involved, and so forth. And I think um, uh, I decided that it was, it was necessary to completely embed myself in each of the projects. So I basically lived in each of these projects for um, the space of like two to three years, meaning that I was there a lot. Uh, I became a member of the Blue House. Uh, I did a residency in Grisdale, or a number of residencies in Grisdale. I sat in on hundreds of meetings at the Serpentine Gallery. And, you know, it was incredible to get that access and permission, but I think it was also really important for me that it was, that, that it had some sort of, like, autonomy from each of those processes, as well as being embedded in those projects, that there was some kind of critical, critical distance or some sort of... Um, possibility that criticality could 
um, come from outside those, those projects. But the only way in which I felt you could actually understand what was going on was actually to be part of them. So then that brings up a lot of you know, issues around the ethics of research and also um, critical distancing and what is the role of the researcher, particularly um, within such projects where you have a, um, a, both a geographical and also a cultural distance from them. So I designed a methodology, and it's important to recognize that methods are not method, the methods don't make up methodologies. Methodologies is a series of methods that can be used. An interview is a method. Uh, a case study is a method. You know, there are various different ways. I rather mm, prefer to think about method and methodology as somewhat different from one another, regardless of what maybe some of your tutors might say. Um, is that you know a methodology is something which has intentionality built into it, and it has something which has a kind of a structure which enables a number of methods to be employed uh, for better or for better or for worse. So, to put it very simply, uh, how was I doing it? Um, I designed uh, a methodology around six stages. And the first stage was uh, gathering, which was an immersive gathering, meaning that I embedded myself in each of the projects as, research, as a researcher um, and produced a kind of an archive around the research that was independent of the archives that I was also looking at. In many cases, these projects, even such as Beyond, which had a lot of uh, financial and um, structural support from SCORE Foundation for Art and Public Space, which was a state-funded um, public art commissioning agency, even they did not have the kind of cohesive, or at least you know, they were not even attempting to put together a cohesive archive. So the gathering was very much what's there, trying to be speculative, trying to find <clears throat> the thing that you don't know is uh, there yet. So I spent a lot of time sitting in offices like this or in rooms like this, going through material with many of the people who were involved in the projects, often asking them to translate for me. Uh, I had a translator that I hired to help me out in uh, the Netherlands and in Denmark in particular. Um, but then you get to see these like things in, in, in real life. So this was like two years, this is two years later. So these things start to kind of like become very kind of palpable and real, even though this was a maquette, they didn't realize, think they were going to realize this sculpture, which is not such a great sculpture, but I think it's um, uh, not, not a terrible one either. Um, I was also, um, they basically did a permanent public, public, um, permanent public sculpture as one of the results of, their, of Beyond. Um, and it was actually, they created this kind of futuristic sci-fi kind of environment and worked with a number of artists to, to produce them. Um, secondly, I attended a lot of meetings and workshops. This is like in the Serpentine Gallery with Jana Graham and the artist Hiwa K. And Hiwa was invited for the first time to meet the um, curators of the project to propose something to them in terms of what he could do in Edgware Road. Um, uh, I was allowed to record it, um, but I had to destroy the files afterwards. I still have them. Um, no, I don't. Um, I do. I don't. I do. I don't. Well, 
uh, you can't have them. Um, and then this is a workshop that I attended in many workshops in Danish um, in order to understand basically the kind of ways in which um, Kirsten and the planners, master planners or urban planners were involving local residents in the process, different kind of techniques they were using that were non-verbal, which was also very interesting. Secondly, <coughs> after gathering all this material, we're starting to build the archive. Um, I invited the curators of each of these projects to be co-researchers. So, so instead of just fully embedding myself in their research process and also my research being somewhat separate to, to that process, I invited them to also be researchers for the project so, so that we would collectively produce um, case study reports, focus groups uh, together. This is one focus group and workshop that we did in Trakroner. This is Kirsten Bergendahl and I gathered together <coughs> a number of uh, independent experts, independent thinkers outside of each of the projects to basically provide a critique for each of the curators, lead, um, lead curators of each of the projects. So this is a number of the curators involved in all of the projects that I described earlier, but also I invited people like Barbara Holub, um, Tono Nielsen, who's a very interesting activist who runs a refugee centre called the Trampoline House in uh, Copenhagen. But these people were invited in to basically critique uh, quite hardcore critique, I would say, of each of the protagonists. And there was an agreement that we made that this kind of level of heavy critique would be permitted across all of, all of the projects and would be kept and confined to those focus groups and, and workshops until we knew what to do with them. <clears throat> then we, uh, I gathered all the, the research from all the various co-researchers and then I wrote a first draft report, we published that first draft report and then we asked people to um, respond to it. Um, and the case study reports started to kind of build over the course of the three years, they were changed by lots of different people. So they were multi-authored, multi I would say, um, and before, like edited millions and hundreds of times before they entered into the book, which was locating the producers. I think it's also important when thinking about research that research, <clears throat> I think, is not a private thing. It's not a thing, well, maybe for me, I'm not the kind of person who wants to just sit in libraries and do research. I think research should really be carried out in public. Um, so what we tried to do is to organize a series of speculative events, um, sometimes fun, sometimes a bit more serious. Uh, but we'd invite some of the protagonists from the projects together to to debate certain issues. This was a uh, debate that I held at Serpentine Gallery uh, in collaboration with the Edgeborough Road people where we, uh, we invited the public, publics, to uh, either hang the commission or support the commission. So it was a debate which the public voted whether public art commissioning should be hung or not. Um, in the end, actually, people decided that public art commissioning should exist. This was an interesting event we organized at Liverpool Biennial, uh, where we invited the directors of uh, many biennials in Europe, from Greece, from, sorry, from Athens, from Lyon, from Berlin, from Istanbul, from Liverpool, 
Um, but the directors of these biennials are often the least visible kind of characters within the curatorial field. They're actually often the people who are doing most of the work. Um, and also the people who have a greatest grasp on the role and function and um, maybe the value uh, that the biennial might have to their, to their city or to their local city. Um, so we, invite, we again had a debate where the biennial directors were articulating all of the long-term and durational impacts of their biennials, where the other people who included uh, Jan Bravout, uh, Kirsten, myself, uh, Annie Fletcher, and some other people, to basically argue against biennials. So it was like for or against biennials. And I think in the end, people were for biennials, but not for the curator of biennials. Uh, which is a distinction to be made. There's some familiar faces. Um, we did, for those of you who are aware of um, uh, Chantal Mouffe, Chantal Mouffe was kind of everywhere at a particular moment. Um, she probably still is. Um, but she um, is a great dancer. If you ever hang out with Chantal Mouffe, go dancing before having the conversation rather than the other way around. Um, she is a lot of fun, uh, but also um, we wanted to really um, find a way to really interrogate her idea of agonism, uh, which was being played out in many um, kind of public art discussions, um, certainly by people like Claire Bishop, Simon Shake, Jan Vervaux, and many other people, uh, Grant Kester and others. And we organized an event at the Goethe Institute in London where we invited Chantal to sit down with us in a space very similar to this, maybe a few more people, um, and to interrogate what she meant by agonism. And it was a very interesting kind of, kind of de debate, um, which ended up going back to actually her roots in, in kind of polit political activism and so forth. I also organized, or co-organized, part of the symposium for, for the Blue House, which is called Out of the Blue. Uh, I did um, the section on accelerated histories where I had the luxury of inviting a number of uh, thinkers to reimagine um, organizational networks, which I think the Blue House was, I think, a very innovative organizational network. There are about like maybe 100 people involved in the project and who realized projects as part of that bigger project. Then dissemination, um, fifth stage, where um, during the research process, we slowly um, uh, disseminated some of the, the, the findings or some of the, some of the things which were, we were thinking about throughout the, the curatorial research and organized in collaboration with ICSIA, or the UK National Public Art Think Tank, very sexy title. Um, but we did three events, public art needs outsiders, public art needs continuity, public art needs time limits. I think a very important part of durational projects is that they are limited to a particular time. It's important to get, get the fuck out, uh, which was very important to, I think, the Blue House, for example, uh, that it came to an end and that somehow the knowledge then becomes more dispersed um, rather than situated in Iberg specifically. So we did one in Grisdale Arts gathered together um, many, many different people. These are public uh, workshops, public events. We did one at, in Leeds at the uh, Yorkshire um, public, par public 
public sculpture park, yeah. Yorkshire public, Yorkshire sculpture park, yeah. Um, and then we did one somewhere else, uh, I think in Bristol. And then finally, um, we um, published all of the material, but also uh, if any of you can get a copy of the book, I don't actually have any copies with me, but there is a CD-ROM, the back of the book, which is the entire archive of Beyond, and it only exists in its entirety on that CD-ROM. So we were also able to kind of like initiate other curatorial projects inside the, inside the locating the producer's research. And I think that, um, and then we exhibited this archive before we uh, digitally documented it and then produced a CD-ROM, which was a supplement to the book. And of course, then we I had to write the book and then edit it and publish it and so forth. But it was just one of the many outcomes of this particular project, that is the book itself. Uh, the CD-ROM was another project. I also um, wrote a policy document for um, the, the Flemish Ministry of Culture around changing their public art commissioning policies to become more durational and will be based on these kind of principles, participation, sociality, hospitality being key. And then I also um, uh, curated a number of parallel durational projects which try to maybe test out some of the um, approaches that people like Mujana and Kirsten and um, Alistair and um, Tom Van Gessel and others were, 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 were initiating as part of their projects. And this was a um, very simple but also very effective structure, which was um, I set up a project called Our Day Will Come, which was a four-week project, and each week would just begin with a question. Monday morning, we would all turn up. We began with maybe 10 people, and we ended with maybe about 300 people on a regular basis for each of the events. We began with the question of what is the school, then we moved to what is remoteness, what is autonomy, what is usefulness, and each week we invite somebody in to lead on those particular questions. Uh, but we had, we, had a, we had a school building, this is our school building, which was a small um, laborer's tea uh, and coffee uh, room, uh, which are now kind of somehow defunct in, 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 in the Australian context. We converted one of those into a small school. We had a school table, which was an artwork by uh, Garrett Long from Canada, <coughs> where you had to sit at the table with one, one other person, person and be in dialogue with them. It's a, it's a desk for two. Uh, and then record those, record those conversations, but each conversation had to be somehow related to the question of the week. We had an archive, which was the research that Mick Wilson and I were producing for uh, the Curating and the Educational Turn book, which we then donated to the University of Tasmania. We invited lots of other free schools across the world to participate in dialogue with us. This was a very nice uh, gift that we received in the post from uh, the uh, Art School UK, where they sent us um, a kettle, uh, some digestive biscuits and some Earl Grey tea for our conversations. Um, they all started off very with like very little, very little enthusiasm, I would say, uh, and then we were just absolutely just couldn't keep, basically just couldn't maintain the level of conversation that people wanted. So we had to then kind of reduce the period of time that people could spend sitting at the table in conversation with one another. 
Uh, this is the week of uh, autonomy, where Annie Fletcher came from the Van Abbey Museum with the question, what is autonomy? And this was at the week where she was supposed to be chairing a conference in the Van Abbey on auto political autonomy. Instead, she came over and <clears throat> hung out with us um, and uh, also smuggled in some um, incredible films from the Van Abbey collection, which were very much looking at uh, kind of political autonomy, particularly in uh, East Jerusalem, Palestine, and the Middle East uh, more generally. Um, but at the end of each week, we would produce a zine. The zine will be designed by, written by, and contributed to by the school. The school, as I said, began with the people that I invited and whoever turned up. And then we kind of initiated many different collaborative events with different participants. This is us talking to um, Jeff Malpas, who's a very, uh, very renowned, one of the most renowned uh, Australian uh, kind of Hegelian theorists, and he organizes these philosophy cafes where he takes, we take over a cafe and um, we um, set up a microphone and then turn it into a philosophy, philosophy session. This is a conversation with a local curator who came to talk about her museum. This was the series of school dinners that we organized, which was we occupied a cottage near the university. And this is in a sense where most of the teaching happened. Uh, which was usually after our bellies were full and that we had consumed some alcohol. And we invited people to do very short presentations. And they could be everything from a jeweler to an activist to an economist to, a, to um, uh, an archivist to an artist and so forth. And they would just do these short presentations and get feedback. And then halfway through, we would then have a Skype conversation with at a different school. This is us talking to Transit in Budapest, uh, where we, um, they were running the uh, free school for art and theory. And we called them up and we had a conversation with them for a couple of hours. We had a school radio station, which was each uh, evening, we would take over an hour of radio time by the school. And the artist, Gart Phelan, uh, would um, give the one member of the school, a single word to spend one hour talking about without any notes. So it turned into a little bit of a crazy thing. Uh, this, uh, so there were words like blackness, uh, things like um, spatiality. Talk about spatiality for one hour. And then every time the, 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 the speaker or the school, the member of the school, um, got into saying something that Gareth didn't agree with, he would then interrupt them and say, I don't agree with that, you have to expand, make your argument better or something like that. So it was a very interesting kind of like site for us. Um, we also had a lot of workshops. This is Rona Byrne and Jem Noble, who are two very good artists, interesting artists, who um, came to uh, us the week of usefulness. Jem proposed uh, the usefulness of Jane Fonda movies or instructional films, and uh, these are these all instructional videotapes and, and uh, old technological devices, VHS, cassette, and so forth, which we collated for him before he came, and then he worked with, he really worked with them as scripts for these series of performances, which were quite hilarious and also quite brilliant. Um, but uh, then we had the artist Sarah Pierce, who uh, designed, who scripted three, um, sorry, four, 
school plays. Each school play will be orientated around one of the questions. Um, this was uh, a piece that Rona Byrne built, which was a uh, black cloud um, balloon sculpture made out of helium. And then we went, uh, we did a, a whole lot of sessions around the usefulness of laughter. Um, we worked with a lot of laughter, yogamatic people, actually. There are a lot of them, it's really weird. Um, but we went, did a yoga laughter workshop. Then we went to meet the, um, the, uh, the Hobart, which is the capital of Tasmania, the Hobart Laughter Club. And we went and we gave them uh, Rona sculpture. And then they taught us how to laugh. Uh, how to use our bodies just to get, get it into the rhythm of laughter, and then your body just starts to basically convulse. It's actually very painful. Um, but you just can't stop laughing for maybe two hours, if you imagine laughing for two hours, the pain, followed quickly by extreme depression. Uh, but we burst the balloons together, and yeah, then just went to bed, I think. Uh, then we had a school disco um, where we ripped apart uh, the t-shirts which were designed by a number of artists or our school uniform and we took over a, a nightclub in Hobart um, and we each of the speak we took it over as a conference so we had a conference in a nightclub which was simultaneously uh, also a nightclub so and each of the speakers had to DJ after they finished speaking and myself and Jem Noble taught them how to DJ we're, he's a very good DJ I'm an okay DJ, but technically I know how to pe teach people to DJ. And so there was this kind of collapse of two different publics. So people came for the nightclub and people came for the conference and neither knew both were going to happen at the same time. And then we left the building and the school, everything that the school produced, made, initiated was donated to different organizations. This is it going to um, a youth center the building itself, we donated the library to the university. The zine is still f funded by the project and it's ongoing now, it's continued by a number of uh, ex-students of, of the university and uh, that's it. So I'm going to just finish with this um, uh, because I think I still should have like six minutes. Um, so I'm really... Um, I just want to finish with maybe two things. Uh, one or two things. One or two. Two. You want two. Not, nothing ever would sure on that. So I think it's really important to recognize um, within these projects when we talk about, particularly when we talk about relationality or if we talk about participation, and I'm not only talking about the, our day will come, I'm talking about all of the durational projects that I've been looking at, but I think to move from uh, like a passive to an active participant in art, it's really increasingly difficult to quantify, and I don't think it's actually very productive to do so. Um, for all of us who work in institutions or have experience of working in institutions, um, we know that the kind of evaluation, self-evaluation, is the kind of like the curse uh, um, of, of participatory practice in a, in, a, in a way. We have to basically make claims for the transformative effects of art and education in these institutions beyond the realms of, 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 of the contemporary art world. And this is really difficult to articulate, to explain, to frame, and so forth. 
So this, I think, is still one of the project, one of the problems that I'm um, that I'm still uh, struggling with. But I think if we were to think of participation as more than just this closed, once-off relational or social interaction with art, we must take account of it as a temporal process that is immeasurable. You can't measure it. It's unquantifiable. You can't quantify it. You know it's there, but you can't quantify it. It's unknowable from the beginning, from the outset. You can't say, I'm going to do a durational project in four years' time. I'm going to do this. That's not, uh, that's, that's not very productive. In this sense, we might think of duration as a participatory process which has its own extrinsic values, such as mobility, agency, change, and effect, that you can't yet put your finger on. I think there's also a tendency to be uh, important to recognize that with all this kind of multiplicity of modes and different investments and different means of interaction between people in these projects, uh, it's really difficult to kind of capture in, in its totality and to represent it in, 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 in a single kind of narrative or a single theory or a single image. I think in this context, duration behaves very much like as a destabilizing effect because there is no longer a fixed time and place in which to quantify what is the experience, what happened, what went on, uh, how, or how much we participated in it. Did we really participate really well in that, or were we just kind of like half participating? And I think this is perhaps the most evidence in that when you, when you, when you, when you engage with many of these projects, either as a producer, or commissioner, or as a researcher, you recognize that there are so many people contributing to the, the, the project who are completely unaware that they're actually doing it and uh, that they're actually taking part in the project and also that even part of the outcome and represented as part of, part of the outcome. So in a sense, their, their participation or what has been done or who took part and what was achieved, it's not something that can be clearly evaluated and I don't think it should be measured in, in a way. And I think that many of these um, issues, if to go back to Bergson at the beginning, um, who thought about time, which is something that surpasses itself in a manner that makes duration the very material of kind of cooperative, what he called creative, creative action at the time when he, he, he uh, first started to articulate what constitutes duration. But this, this idea of like a psychological kind of experience or this transitory state of becoming that, that Bergson was so evidently articulating within his uh, idea of the evolution of creativity as a state of being within time that succeeds itself in a manner that makes duration that very material. So, so duration becomes the material as well as the timeliness of, of, of practice, of creative evolution of practice. And for Bergson, it was always... Uh, our actions that are always have the most effect are those that are actually in time, like in our time, and allow for the unknown to be brought about or brought to the fore, um, and that does not anticipate in advance its own formation during or uh, in the course of, of, of its action. And I think many of the projects that are really doing incredible durational work, um, they're not anticipating um, certain kind of like outcomes, if you like, although it's important to kind of you know, drive the project through, uh, through some events and so forth. But duration cannot <coughs> run out because by definition it's something that endures, it's something that is being changed, materialized through a, a transitional process that it's taking place in time. So if duration is to be understood as an attribute of participation, 
something must shift in time and our concept of time for the participant, like an object that's, uh, to use Bergson's analogy, like a lump of sugar that's, that is put into a glass of liquid or a glass of water, each time it goes through a durational process, each time it's, it's the same but somewhat different, and this is why it's impossible to articulate this kind of durational, durational transformation that the sugar is, is going through because each time it's the same and each time it's also equally different. So there's this perpetual movement in, in its materiality, but also how it's experienced. If you look at a, a lump of sugar dissolving in water, each time you do it again and again and again, it will, it will also look different. It will be experienced differently by you, but also by it. And I think that this is this, this, this kind of dialogical space that, that, that's, that I would call um, uh, this kind of a transformation that kind of unfolds. And I think these values, or these values of openness and so forth, are really important in terms of rethinking publicness uh, as a kind of post-participatory art practice. And what I mean by that is that many theorists, Cran Kester, Miwon Kwan, Claire Doherty, Claire Bishop, even Liam Gillick, and less so Liam Gillick, and others, um, I've taught about participation in art and its public context as something which is configured through the experience of art's reception, its, art, its objecthood, and its active potential to engage with others and to be transformed <clears throat> by this thing we call art, or to take uh, a more kind of ethical approach and to think about be transformed into an ethics of art, so good art has an ethical relationship with the participant. But I would say a lot of durational practice appears to argue for a kind of post-participation, that is, uh, and I, I'm not a big fan of post-anything, but I think post-participation is, is really the current condition that, that I think we're in more generally, but I think it's also um, something which is very evident within these durational projects, where together for a period of time, or being together for a period of time inside these projects, without fully knowing what one is participating in or producing, while nevertheless having some kind of common objective, I think is very, is very apparent within, within, within all of these projects. People are participating in a process and being open to it with some common objective uh, without actually knowing what the kind of value or agental qualities of their participation is. So I think by taking account of post-participation, uh, in art and with art as a kind of unfolding and accumulation, accumulation of multiple positions, engagements, and moments registered in what we account for as the artwork, not as the participation, but as the artwork itself, and then we may be able to move beyond the kind of individual participatory encounter of an exhibition moment or this one-to-one -one relationship with art. So, so if we think about the artwork as already being made up of all these kind of post-participatory moments, properties and modalities, uh, we, 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 we don't see participation on one side and art on, on the other. So in order for us to, to understand um, post-participation from the perspective of production of the producer, she or he or they who participate through artistic processes rather than through reception, so processes rather than reception, who participate in art, we might begin to distinguish what kind of different forms of relationality and to move behind, beyond the relational as merely another social encounter with art and with its exhibition or with its objecthood. So to move away 
from art as something which is experienced with things, with stuff, that in, in sense it's, it, it takes on a more social uh, dimension, with artistic production as one of its, uh, one of its kind of participatory um, outcomes. And I think such a shift in this perception must initially consider different durational specific qualities of art as something driven by ideas of extending public time, so at least an investment in, in, in keeping it going uh, for a particular period of time and never, never minding about where it's sited or situated specifically. So I think this shift from space to time is, is kind of necessary in order for us to understand uh, duration as a kind of a discontinuity in a unitary time and space, time and place relations, which is <clears throat> what I think much public art discourse has suffered from over the last um, 20 years. And I'm just going to end very shortly with this um, analogy. Of very, it's a very old uh, text. It's a very unpopular text. But sometimes looking in these faraway places, um, you end up finding something which is very particular and precise. Um, so this, um, in 1902, uh, the uh, Viennese art historian Alois Reigel, uh, Reigel uh, applied an understanding of attentiveness to the dynamics of 16th century Dutch group portraiture, um, where he, in particular, his analysis of Franz Hal's paintings and those of Rembrandt, late Rembrandt, he said that a group portrait was different to a family portrait, which was, and are different to an individual portrait, which were the two dominant models of portraiture that were happening in 16th century, uh, 15th, 16th century Netherlands. Uh, but to think of a group portrait neither as an expanded ex version of an individual portrait nor, so to speak, a mechanical collection of individual portraits in one picture or representational image. And I think this is also the way in which I'm also trying to read these projects so that it's not, <clears throat> it's not so easy but not, not even so useful to find who's doing what, where and when, but just to recognise that there are these multiple encounters happening simultaneously um, and I think when they're working really effectively, as with Reigel's analysis of this painting, he says it's, it's, not, it's a free association of autonomous, independent individuals. So for Reigel, attentiveness, uh, it was something that inhabited other means of unification between the figures, say, represented in the, in the group portrait, ruling out the possibility that being portrayed was somehow restricted to a common or singular action or, or emotion. So what you'll see... In, in, in this painting, for example, there's what he calls, in terms of thinking about attentiveness, there's, there's these two forms of coherence. There's uh, firstly an internal coherence, that is there's a coherence internally to the image, to the portrait, to the group that is being portrayed within the artwork, which preserves like the qualities of likeness of each individual within the group. Uh, and, and who are also attentive to one another. So in a sense, the, the people who are being portrayed, they look a little bit like what they look like in these, in these paintings. So he's not, what Franz Hals was doing in particular is that he was, he was painting, uh, portraying people who were from like real parts of life. They weren't royalty, they weren't rich. And they were people who had lots of common, um, common kind of uh, <coughs> careers, doctors, nurses, laborers sea merchants and so forth. And they, um, together, they each have, if you see in this, in terms of the internal coherence, the internal coherence is also um, struck up by a number of kind of like, um, 
uh, motifs, but also a number of uh, uh, kind of augmented relationships. So you see this little kick here. She's holding something independently of the group. She's also looking at somebody over here. Uh, each of the figures are kind of attentive to one another, but also involved in a kind of like in some kind of autonomous act, whether it be the tickling of a child, whether it be gazing into, into each other's eyes, whether it be the clutching of the gloves, or whether it be the spilling of, of the fruit, or whether it be the, the touching on the knee, or it's, there's always these like slight kind of interactions between, between each other, but they're also kind of doing something which is independent of, of one another. And this is what uh, this is what Rigel calls like an internal coherence, so they're cohering to one another and being attentive to each other, whilst also attentive to their independent, common, independent act activity. But he also said that what was necessary for attentiveness to truly happen was that there would be an external coherence. So that means that secondly, the individuals within the group would not only be attentive to those around them and internal to the group, they would also be attentive to that which is outside of the group. So be attentive to the public, to be attentive to the audience, to be attentive to the spectator. So in this sense, you have somebody over there being brought in, somebody over there being brought in, there's someone maybe there being brought in, someone over here being looked at, someone over here being looked at. So there's this sense that that which is outside the group is just as important in terms of it's, it's important to, to be attentive to that which is outside the group in order for the true level of attentiveness to happen on an externally coherent level. And he argued that attentiveness then is achieved through like this equal consideration of the dynamics of the compositional arrangement and the psychological exchanges within the group being portrayed, but it's also achieved through these narrative devices, the tickling of the child's the, the staring into the eyes, the knocking over of the fruit, the clutching of the glove, the hand on the knee, and so forth. And this concept of intensiveness may be applied, I think, to durational public art, in which uh, durational public art can be understood as a, a, a type of contemporary group portrait where equal and simultaneous attention is given to the participant or by participants to one another or post-participants to one another and to their immediate environments, whereas internal cohesion is achieved through mutual attentiveness between the protagonists within the group and external coherence is, is encouraged in relation to their surroundings and the world outside and beyond the group, beyond that's what make, it makes art public. In this way, reciprocity may be created through interrelationships that are both internal and external to the group uh, of players, actors, performers, actions, spectators, and so forth. In progressive public art <coughs> uh, that is durational, this is necessary. I think attentiveness is a necessity uh, that proposes a multiplicity of identities that shift around. So the identities are never kind of fixed. Are, are you the curator? Are you the commissioner? Are you the producer? Are you the artist? Are you the activist? Are you the architect? Are you the, uh, do you, do you, are you the local person? Are you the global person? All of these kind of you know, entangled uh, identitarian kind of concepts shift around and contribute towards the actual curatorial work itself. And there's a kind of a multiple image that's produced that is both socialized and I think kind of like semi-autonomous. And frames of social and human interaction are, in, in a sense, put into place to enable discursive and material production of art. And the results can be a cumulative process of semi-public cooperation, whereby ideas of publicness, hospitality, and citizenship could offer both imaginative and 
tangible potential. Thank you. Thank you for bearing with me. Yeah. We could do questions. Actually, if anybody has got any questions, please just make yourself visible because you need the microphone. We are recording this. It's okay not to have questions. Friday is going to be about Daffy Duck. You might have more que questions. <laughs> it will. Daffy does play a big part. Slightly less serious. Can I start then? Mm -hmm. um, when you were actually going through all the projects that you observed, participated mm. with, and analyzed, you made very clear that your presence, your physical presence, was really important. Yeah. You need to leave the projects. No? Mm -hmm. And equally, you said that evaluation is something that somehow even destroys the, the nature of the participation in itself. It's mm -hmm. very difficult to measure, to understand what the participation is. Mm -hmm. So um, let's translate this for an institution anyway. Mm -hmm. uh, when most of the time, as a curator, you are present in the project, therefore you really understand what's going on. And in the end of the day, even if you are not obliged to do the evaluation, you just would like to understand if it had any impact whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And but still, you are looking for an external perspective, someone that can be your um, critical friend and tell mm -hmm. you this didn't go very well. So, are you actually man basically suggesting that the only way for that to happen is for this critical friend to participate and to be present because even by narration, it would be impossible mm -hmm. to communicate what happened in the situation? Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm thinking about the, the um, um, embeddedness maybe more, more at least having a, graph, having a graph of these projects. There's a kind of a need to embed one's research in the projects. That doesn't mean that presentness or being present all the time is, is necessary. And in actual fact, many of the lead protagonists from each of these projects are not around all the time. They're, they're moving in and, in, in and out of the, in, in, in and out of the, the process, certainly on, on a local level. Um, but I think that's uh, one thing that I recognized and maybe I hope to continually recognize is the limitations of my own knowledge and the limitations of my own capacity to fully grasp things which uh, can take an awful lot of time to comprehend, understand, and so forth, and maybe bringing people like master planners and urbanists and thinkers and social engineers and architectural theorists into the questioning process as co-researchers um, can be a very productive thing to do. So in, in a sense, you're always in this kind of like, set in this kind of these states of, of being part of the project through other people as well as being part of the project oneself. And in a way, I think many of these projects are 
I think offering us, if you go a bit deeper, maybe read some of the case studies, they are actually offering us uh, other institutional models. They are offering us other organizational models that we can either you know, uh, adopt or adapt or take up or reject or mobilize for moments and, and so forth. And I think this is one of the things that, that you can also, like an institution, can, can really learn, learn, learn from them. And I think that then when you recognize the limitation of your own capacity um, within the research and then you, are, you, you articulate that to the group, then there is, there is then, you know, there's like an honesty show where everyone also recognizes their own limitations. And therefore, then critique doesn't become such a negative force. It becomes a very positive force, you know. Of course, there's lots of critique that was not taken on board by many of the protagonists in these projects, and it also couldn't be taken on board because, you know, public art is a very impure thing. It's a very, it's a very, um, it's a very convoluted, um, contaminated. I'm trying to find a better word than that, but it's it's tainted by the very mechanisms that enable it to, to happen. So, but then those mechanisms that enable to happen can sometimes shift or change for a particular, particular moments, like with Jana's project, for example, the, to start out through a public art project that promotes Eiberg, which was the commission for 5,000 euros, and then to end up doing a four-year project, which had you know, many, many different kind of trickle-down effects, was kind of incredible. And, and I think that could only have happened through this kind of like insider, outsider perspective, being within the process, but also being somewhat at a distance from it. And also recognizing the limitations of what the, the context was. Um, so trying things out, and then sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, and then you try them out again differently. But I think that this, um, yeah, I think that's mm, this kind of insider, outsider approach, I think is would be more, I'd be more comfortable with thinking about that than this constant presence of the individual that needs to be around, that needs to always be there, that needs to, that needs to kind of charismatically, you know, push everything through on, on a constant basis. Although I would say that all of these people who were involved in these projects, certainly the lead curators were definitely very charismatic in the way in which they dealt with a lot of different um, groups, communities, constituencies, whether it be with the mayor's office or, you know, kind of um, a refugee group. So I think it's very, um, a group of refugees, and I think it was, uh, they are always mindful of that and able to switch roles between those different kinds of ways of talking about the project um, um, as a kind of an organizational structure. Not sexy as a public art. <laughs> sure. Hi there. Hi. Um, it's just a very um, practical question about um, embedding yourself in the research. Mm -hmm. And I guess the easiness of that or the difficulty of that, like, would you be able to do that if you don't, to do the research if you don't know the people who are doing mm. it, who are doing the project? Um, mm. And how difficult would that be to research the same 
public mm. art process. So I understand your methodology and I mm -hmm. completely understand I've done it. Mm. And it is the best way to do it. But mm -hmm. I also heard about projects when somebody has a research topic and would like to embed himself in certain process, specifically mm -hmm. around the curatorial or the curatorial process, which often is a fragile pro pro process and there are often things that people mm -hmm. don't want to talk about, specifically yeah. if a researcher is in that room. Yeah. So how do you still make that research transparent or even viable, or how do you know that you can, how, how deep you can get into that process. So I'm just wondering, mm -hmm. how did you deal with that as a, as a, as a method, <coughs> as a methodology? Um, mm, I think sometimes very well and sometimes less well. <laughs> um, but I, there was just, you just couldn't, it was impossible to read anything unless you were actually spending time there and it was also impossible to, when I say read anything, like just to, for things to become legible to, to you. Like I don't know, or I do know a lot now, but I not, was not so familiar with like housing authority regulations in the Netherlands or into um, public art commissioning policies in Amsterdam or into the deregulation of the suburbs in the Netherlands um, or even you know, aggressive social engineering. I wasn't completely familiar with many many of those things. And I think that uh, they were the things that started to become interesting to me, maybe less interesting to some of the, 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 the lead curators of these particular projects. So in, in a way, you're, you know, as a researcher, you're bringing something additional to those projects as well as having this incredible access, which I was permitted to have. There were a number of projects, I will admit, that I, that I was looking at and that I was spending time doing research with, but I think many of the, the projects themselves were not robust enough, or the, at least the people involved in some of the projects were not robust enough to, to really take the criticism or to think of criticism, or I prefer critique, but to think of critique as, 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 as a really important part of the, the process of them you know, uh, being there and looking at questions of impact before anything has even happened is like so so such a strange idea that's built into the, many of these projects but i think it's it's it becomes very um it becomes very difficult to be completely separate when you're in the research process i did have about a year away from all those projects in order to you know write final reports but there were the final chapters for the book were also based on many lectures that I delivered sometimes with the protagonists or the curator and the artist being in, in the same, same room and I would be critically describing their, their, their projects. And, and I think it also works both ways because you know, I was open to, to being critiqued as well and then there were certain shifts I think that, that kind of happened because of that. Uh, like when Jeanne invited me to be part of the Blue House, I was very against that because I thought then that would be ultimately tainting the research and wouldn't have any kind of objectivity. And then I recognized that research is not an objective process in any way. And I did really believe in that work. I still believe in that project. I think still think it's like one of the one of the best public art projects of the last 20 years. And I would happily make that statement, but it's deeply, deeply, um, deeply, deeply um, uh, problematic at the, at the same time. 
Um, and I think there's recognizing the limitations of what the project could itself do was actually the basis of many of these projects. Like we will try to do something, but recognize that it's not, we're not going to be able to achieve everything. And, uh, and then at a certain moment, you just have to stop. So I stopped with the, with the Edgeware Road research at a moment where they just started really producing things. So in, in a sense, what the chapter about in the book is, is, is actually about this moment before anything is actually made. Um, but still, you were able to, it was still possible with the, the level of um, gathering that we did around that project, primary, primary material in particular, it was still possible to understand how it was functioning, certainly institutionally, but I will also organizationally how it had this kind of independent relationship from the Serpentine, but at the same time was fully immersed in different communities, constituencies in, in the Edgeware Road area, and, but then also how this was a point of contestation between Serpentine and Edgeware Road, it was almost this micro-institution set up in opposition to the Serpentine, but at the same time, it's totally dependent on the Serpentine for its funding and its support and its, its kudos and, and so forth. But I think it's, uh, there are some times when it wasn't possible to be objective and then there's other times when it was you know, quite slippery and then there's other times then it was very argumentative and uh, there were lots of disagreements and, um, but all, always with us, I, I believe and I hope um, I'm saying that I believe I'll always with a level of respect for for the research and also for the projects themselves and uh, and then it's also to recognize as a co-researcher there are other dynamics which are happening if you're involving you know a kind of a core group of say 20 people who are part of the interrogatory research process they may also have other perspectives that might be different to, to yours or different to the, the, the curator or, or artist who's, who's initiated the project. And they may that may end up becoming more, you know, more, more clearly the lens through which we um, critique and engage with the, the projects. But definitely duration um, was not something which was specifically um, uh, argued for by any of those projects when I, when I first engage with them when I first uh, started to, to look at them, when I first started to meet people. and um, So in a way, duration was, was kind of my lens in a sense. That's what I brought. That was specifically what I brought to the, to the, to the project, to they, those projects. Hi. I have Hi. Oh, a sorry. quick question. Yeah. Hey. Um, it's hard to see back here. It's related to the image that, that's on the screen yeah. and, uh, and the quote that you read for us. And my question really is, how did you come across this quote? Mm -hmm. And maybe a little bit of your experience then deciding to, to use it, right, the way you've used it. Um, yeah, I, I think I... Uh, there are a number of things which I've... There are a number of things which I've talked about here in this presentation that are not fully described in the book or not fully described or not fully pronounced in, the, in, in the, the, the writing around the research. And attentiveness is possibly one of those things which I had been thinking about, um, but didn't quite, wasn't quite able to articulate it or to have a nuanced view on it. I was also becoming very, very tired uh, with the, um, the various um, 
polarizing arguments that were happening between different characters of which I, I was asked to be part of and, and kind of refused between Claire, Claire Bishop and Liam Gillick and Grant uh, Kester and uh, Santiago Sierra and Thomas Hirschhorn and all these various people who were really arguing for either an aesthetic dimension to art or an ethical dimension to art. And I felt it very tired and boring. And then I also recognized that one of the things, which actually goes back to the previous question as well, um, uh, was that many of these critics had not experienced many of the works that they were describing or writing about. Now, maybe there are certain people who are way more talented than I am to be at that are able to do that, but I think it's crazy to be brought, write about something and you, you've never ex seen it or experienced it. I mean, it's not, it's not impossible. I mean, I've been very limited, I've had very limited access to like Alan Capro performances, but I can still, you know, have a, have a, have a, an understanding of them, even though I wasn't around in the 1950s, you know. So uh, I wouldn't just denounce, you know, the non-experiential uh, as, as, as a bad methodology or a bad way of, of, of engaging with these works. But I became very tired with it, and then I um, just really fell across this really great, um, essay by uh, Margaret uh, Iverson, uh, which was published in the late 1980s. Uh, and I wanted to start reading things which were, like predated the emergence, or what we would call the emergence of concepts of public, the public sphere or the public realm. So that maybe goes back to the late 19th century, early 20th century. So this moment where the question of private and public space is yet to be fully Fully, fully pronounced in, in, in a way. It hasn't been kind of habermast or it hasn't been uh, completely pol politicized in, in a way. We, it's, uh, so rather than go to the usual suspects like you know Marx and Berman and Benjamin and people like that, I decided to look at art history because I was having difficulty writing about these works as art. Well, finding it easier to write about them as social projects or political projects. And I think what Reigel does in 1902 is that he's really making an argument for, for art, uh, but through the lens of, of art history. So he transforms art history in this particular, particular um, series of essays that he wrote in the early uh, 1900s, sorry, 20, uh, early 20th century. And um, so I happened across this book on, um, by Margaret Everson, which is published by MIT. It's out of print now, really hard to get. And then uh, I found the original text that she was referring to, which were published in Austri Aust Austrian and in German. I got somebody to translate them for me, and then they became the th one of the lenses through which I was able to read the work. So, but I think uh, I just think trying to find ways to talk about things which are difficult to describe, and trying to find. <laughs> other ways of doing that is, I think, an important en endeavor. And uh, I wasn't happy with the way in which these projects were being maybe discussed in public art discourses, contemporary art discourses. Thank you. OK, so my question um, goes a bit, uh, goes into uh, uh, the movement of, of bringing together and uh, actually uh, focusing on um, distribution or rather than the centralized uh, working. Mm -hmm. And uh, this was also a bit related to the talk we had earlier mm -hmm. from you today where you showed your very, yeah, 
earlier practices from the 90s as well. And um, I was wondering how the, um, because uh, they seem, um, um, well, I'm not really sure, um, the, the, the folk, uh, yeah, no, I, 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 uh, I, I seem a bit lost where, um, mm -hmm. uh, how I, I approach this now, so I'm, I'm just going to pose a question, yeah, sure. and I'm, I'm, I hope you can elaborate a bit on my, my rambling, um, which I'm wondering about is that how, how you see um, uh, 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 specifically curatorial research um, uh, rhetor rhetoric uh, valuable for um, the mediation of this attentiveness of these relations, focusing on relations rather than uh, focusing on a centralized mm -hmm. um, voice, basically. Mm -hmm. mm. There's probably a few questions in there. Yeah, there's like, I, uh, I know that's the, and the I think way it's I like ask it's hard, questions, it's apparently. Hard, I know, I, <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, mm, I think what makes many of these projects different to normative forms of public art commissioning is that the roles, functions, boundaries and borderlines between different forms of practice are not so easily defined. So in terms of thinking about distribution, I would say that the, the greatest impact of like, say something like Blue House was not when it was in Iberg. Its biggest impact was what happened after Iberg, where many of these people who were involved in that project were were kind of affected and touched by it and learned from each other and you know again go back to their institutions or go back to their 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 home countries and you know initiate other projects which <coughs> might you know have some kind of relationship with what they learned at, at the Blue House and I think that's. That's a kind of distributed not yeah, that's, knowledge that's production. That yeah. was something that popped in my head as yeah. well because I uh, I moved to Amsterdam the mm. year after the uh -huh. uh, the Blue, Blue House, House project, yeah. so I've experienced that mostly through people talking to me about it, mm. and um, that that was um, something that was um, yeah that was one of the thoughts mm. I had when I was. Uh, uh, listening to your explanation of it and I um, I'm coming from an actu uh, actually another experience and mm -hmm. uh, then I'll just yeah. drop that in and see what that does um, uh, is that I see a lot of curatorial rhetoric in these projects that are meant to are meant are focused on this very um, feeling and you you also already said that it's mm -hmm. quite quite um, not really quantitative uh, mm -hmm. ways of, of, of working, while at the same time the rhetoric is really cold, mm -hmm. hard, mm -hmm. sometimes. So I'm, I'm quite yeah, mm. curious what I, I think your idea about yeah, that is. I think, um, I think, well, certainly my read on the project that I was looking at, and still I'm looking at, um, I would say there was a lot of, um, there was a little bit of rhetoric, and but then there was a, some pretty well justified rhetoric. And I think also to go back to this kind of the role of the insider outsider was a key part of that. So there were moments when, for example, uh, and it's I think sometimes 
these little stories can tell you an awful lot from, from the difference between rhetoric, rhetoric and action. There was two, three projects that were a part of the Blue House, the Blue House. One was a project called Frida, and it was a hospitality project where uh, the cleaner of the house, um, of the Blue House, was hired to look after the house, and she lived in the house for four years, and um, she wrote a book about how people responded to her. She was a, um, a legal refugee uh, coming from Africa, and she um, basically took up her own research project to see how people would, that are coming into the house, artists, activists, political theorists, and so forth, how they would engage with the cleaner. Um, and there's, it's very telling if you read some, some of her, her, her research and how, how poorly she's been treated by certain people that are kind of pertaining to have a very libertarian view of like labor relations and distribution of labor and kind of feminist rhetorics and things like that. So that's a kind of interesting, that was an interesting project that perhaps dealt a little bit with that. There was a second project in that where Jana um, uh, exchanged jobs with her core funder every Wednesday. So he would come to the Blue House and be the artist and she would go to um, his place of work and be the funder and also distribute some of those um, resources to different projects, uh, activist initiatives, social initiatives and so forth. So that's another project which I think was actually kind of almost like not even there when you look through the documents of the thing, but I think an incredible project, just a, just a very simple gesture of exchange, of, of a kind of cohabitational exchange. And then, uh, did I say I'd say three? What was the third one? <laughs> I don't know. That's two good ones, I think. But um, I, uh, I think they're also very, very clever in using a certain kind of like language, framing devices, you know, to structure a project around six different scenarios, such as like beyond, or to structure um, uh, for Kroner around these kind of developmental kind of stages in relation to kind of place that can be very easily understood by people who are working in public art policy, to people who are working in the mayor's office, to people who are, you know, kind of residents in the area. So I think they're also very smart and in, in, in terms of sticking to, to that language as well. Um, and I think there is definitely a lot of rhetoric around hospitality and accelerated histories and inst instant urbanism, but I've seen a lot of instant urbanism and I've seen a lot of um, hospitality and I experienced a lot of accelerated histories. Um, they also, actually, the third one was like, I was quite shocked um, at a certain moment in the project where they had this beautiful cafe, which is like the only cafe in Eiberg, uh, people could pop in, have, have free coffee, uh, very cheap homemade kind of food. Um, uh, so it could pop in, so it became a kind of like a social center uh, for the first few months. And then, then the Blue House just said, okay, now nah, we're stopping it. We're not a community arts project. We're not a, an agency for social cohesion. We're not a coffee shop. We are not, that's not what we're doing. We need to stop it now. And then of course, then you imagine all the people who are popping in every, on a daily basis for their coffee and their home baked goods, um, you know, they're not so happy. So there's still even this like, I think that was such a brave thing to do. And then in a way, the, many of the residents that I interviewed and who were moving into the area uh, were really um, 
kind of impacted by that shift and then became more actively involved in the other kinds of activities that were maybe less passive uh, for, for their, their, their participation within, within, within the project. I think there's, you know, I think with Grisdale, for example, there's also a lot of uh, rhetoric around what they do or what they have done. And I think the Creative Egremont project was the one project within what they've been doing there that I think is, is really true to what it says it's trying to do, or at least it's trying to do. Uh, I think also nearly all of the people who were involved as the main in instigators of the project were also really recognizing um, the limits of what was possible um, within um, a kind of constrained sit situation. And I think then also the ethics of different ways of engaging with different constituencies was also very, very apparent. So, um, you know, you need to talk to the bad guys sometimes to get things done, and sometimes the bad guys end up being the good guys in the end, and things like that were things that I learned a lot from, from being in rooms with people that I really would not think I would want to be in a room with. Um, but yeah, I think rhetoric can also be okay sometimes, as long as it has some, some, <laughs> element, of, some element of truth. For that, and I was um, listening to you talk about your process, and I was mm. really interested that you turned to um, art history, because when I was listening to you talk and sort of mentioning things like attentiveness and duration, I just yeah. was thinking about ethnography yeah. and anthropology, yeah. and um, and even kind of going back to like mm. Malinowski and thinking about um, him talking about this moment of immersion, where you basically create, you generate all these kind of social um, yeah, the social, and then you remove mm -hmm. yourself to the desk, to the right report, and, mm -hmm. and to him talking about that moment in ethnography as being profoundly antisocial. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered if that had informed any of your thinking. Yeah, I, I looked a lot, I looked, I mean, I did use a lot of methods from social anthropology and from, you know, maybe some more radical um, ethnographic approaches. Um, I, I felt like, so I maybe began with this idea of being an you know, observant researcher, you know, participant observer position, which many, many anthropologists have written endlessly about it. Uh, I used a lot of methods from anthropology and specifically social anthropology in terms of thinking about what is a case study, what is a case, what is a study, um, you know, what's the difference between a case study and, um, and a project, or what's the difference between a case study as, a, as an exemplar, what's the difference between a case study as, as a speculative um, object of study. So I, so I did look at a lot, a lot of that, and I think um, that's probably more apparent, certainly in the book, than it is in my reflections after I published the book. So I think attentiveness, maybe, and, and Rival gives, gives me an opportunity to maybe situated more into a different kind of dominant discourse around public art and participation and relationality, which was, as we all know, very prevalent in the 1990s, which is kind of my, in a sense, the generation that I probably started to find out about some of these practices. Um, and, um, but 
the book in itself is very, very much written for not a non-art specialist audience. It's written for people who sit in rooms making policy um, that are very, and they and it's written in a way where it's hopefully understood by those kinds of people, uh, as well as the artists and curators. And I was very clear when I set out in that book. It's very different than any other book that I've that I've written or that I've edited. Uh, and that I was very clear that I wanted it to be um, read by as many people as possible, and I wanted it to be read by people who had authority and power to make these kind of shifts and changes in terms of how and when um, art will be brought into kind of like um, a regenerational process or something like that. But yeah, I think I, I think I also I was mm, some of the research happened within uh, the University of the West of England. And I had a lot of arguments with the anthropology department or some of the anthropologists who were there who were really kind of grasped it as a very objective kind of way of making something very specific, very general. And I'm actually more interested in the specific remaining very specific and then looking at it through a more general lens after, after the effect. Um, so getting as close as possible as possible to it first and then trying to find other, other methods of distancing. And I think anthropology sometimes doesn't, or at least a lot of the anthropological theory that I was reading didn't seem to um, be able to do, do that. I was very interested in, uh, what's his name, um, Schneider's book on art, art and anthropology, and I think he's, he's probably the closest probably the closest I would get to believing in anthropology as a way of reading art or something. Can I ask one last question? Yeah. It's so hard to see here. Okay. Is oh. Oh. Um, when, when we met four years ago at BART, um, and I mentioned that I had noticed that locating the producer is mainly using case studies mm -hmm. from the UK and North, North Europe and Central mm -hmm. Europe, but almost none from the Mediterranean area mm -hmm. and Southern European countries. Um, I asked that question to you because I wanted to understand if you didn't reach that geography mm -hmm. because there were no means or no interest or for any other reason, and yeah. you answered, well, I didn't find that many projects. Mm -hmm. And then tonight you said that uh, you had noticed that in the 90s, beginning of 2000, mm -hmm. uh, Netherlands was very prolific. The mm -hmm. best uh, projects that you could observe were actually happening mm -hmm. there. So mm -hmm. I would like to ask after mm -hmm. many years, uh, after editing, locating the producer, yeah. mm -hmm. and still carrying on observing all the development of public art and social engagement practice mm -hmm. within Europe and potentially the US as well, um, if you have noticed that there are specific patterns that are helping the flourishing of these practices oh. or not? Wow. <coughs> That's three questions. So firstly, uh, I looked at a lot of projects um, in the world. Um, so I looked at what Ashgal Awam was doing in Beirut, specifically through homeworks, but not not necessarily that moment when everybody turns up for the two-week symposium, but what was happening in between in terms of the duration project. Um, I was looking at Niveau Commanditaire in um, 
in uh, France, which I've actually contributed an essay to their most recent publication, which actually deals with some of these ideas of attentiveness and duration and longevity and post-participation. Um, so in a way, I was part of that project for a while as a researcher, but they were quite inactive uh, between 2007 and 2010 when I was like really involved in the primary research. I did, I interviewed everybody, interviewed a lot of residents, interviewed a lot of artists. Similarly, the version of, of Niveau Commanditaire in uh, Belgium, uh, I looked at that. I also looked at the one in Italy, which didn't really work out, but at least it was something to look at. I did a lot of research with Park Fiction in Germany. Park Fiction was, had already kind of reached a moment where it was, the research had kind of been done by the, by the, the participants who, were part, who set that project up. It, it, it began in the earlier 90s. I think 95 it started, four or five. So it had already been like 10 years um, resisting the kind of like gentrification of the San Pauli area in, in Hamburg. And uh, so I looked at those closely. I also went to China and, and to, to look at some projects over there. I just couldn't read them at all. I just, just couldn't, I didn't have the language. I didn't have an understanding of the context. Um, I also didn't want to do this project, specifically the primary research forever. And it's a lot of research. It's like really a lot of research to just look up, be, keep up with one one of the projects. So five. Well, it, it started at, at eight, and then it became six, and then ended up with five case studies. Uh, so it was also just recognizing that these would be case studies that could perhaps be very particular, but also could be learned from by other projects which I was look, looking at. So I recognized the limitations of the the methodology, but also limitations of the research itself and also my limitations. Um, but I also, um, you know, I did look at some projects in the States as well. I was particularly interested in things like um, Paul Chan's uh, Waiting for Godot uh, in, in uh, Orleans, Orleans uh, New Orleans. And, you know, I went there and it wasn't what it sounded like. Um, I also looked at a number of public art funds projects in the States. And other than people like, you know, Teastra Gates or uh, the Park Row projects um, in, uh, in, in, in the States, I uh, found it very difficult to find public, public art, you know, that was funded, that was kind of working within more social and public um, uh, structures, I suppose, um, it, other than those that were maybe initiated by artists that didn't last for very long, like some of temporary services projects or some of group materials earlier projects or um, some of Tanya Bergera's projects that she did in Queens. Um, so yeah, I was looking at a lot of other projects, but then I just went, okay, I can't do it all, so this is what, 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 I, what I focus on for now. And also they're all very, very different from one another. Although there's, I might be presenting them as very much the same. Did five case studies. They were different enough from each other to be able to stand alone as kind of chapters in the book and also to stand alone as, as different, different approaches to commissioning pu public art. 
Um, and have I experienced anything since? That would make me think. Uh, what there's maybe two things which are really impossible to, I think, replicate, but I think maybe essential to durational projects. And one is that somebody with authority at a certain moment at the beginning of the project agrees that it will happen and it's a good idea and they sign a piece of paper. And in the signing of that piece of paper, the project happens for 10 years, for 12 years, for five years, for four years. And Tom von Gessel with Gore and beyond, Susanna with Blauhaus, uh, Kirsten in particular with Trekon wrote a plan that was accepted by some, some individual or some people with the authority to keep it going. And um, uh, so that's why they lasted so long, but also why they came to an end because the political forces that had the will to power and the will to, for them to, to happen uh, had moved on to do, do other things. And then once the 10 years were up or the four, four years were up or the 12 years were up in the case of Truckroner, you know, they, the projects had started to kind of just, you know, become a little bit more diluted and less um, fully supported by the financial and funding infrastructures, but also by the city the cities themselves um, need a mayor to sign a piece of paper or an urban planner or yeah and that's very 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 evident yeah and I'm not sure how <coughs> um, how that really functions currently within the UK um, um, more widely um, yeah I think the whole percent for art scheme is like so flawed and so um, limited in terms of what can be done within those constraints and also the people who are often making those decisions are not the people that you want to be making the decisions for you if you're an artist or you're a curator who's really interested in transforming art and social life thank you so much thank you all Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for bearing with us with the technical problems. And thank you, Paul, for joining us here Thanks tonight. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Thank you all.